Stuff is too cheap and so we overuse it and abuse it. What challenges does that create? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting to those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and to our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 78. Thanks for downloading. And if you've taken the time to leave a review or recommend us to your friends and colleagues, thank you. I really appreciate all your support. In today's episode, we're talking about critical materials, the complexities of modern supply chains, the challenges of how we ensure fair shares of finite resources, and much more. Helping guide us through these topics is Colin Church, the Chief Executive of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, the global network for the materials cycle, also known as IOM3. Colin moved to IOM3 in late 2018 from the Chartered Institute of Waste Management, CIWM, the professional UK body for resources and waste management. Before that, Colin spent over 20 years in the UK government working on a range of issues at the borders of science, engineering and policy. He's also chair of the Green Alliance Circular Economy Task Force. I'll jump back in afterwards with my takeaways, but first let's hear from Colin. Colin, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Catherine, thank you for having me. It's good to see you today and uh, it's unfortunate that People listening won't be able to see the rather dramatic materials background that you've got behind you. Um, I'm curious to even know what that is. It's multicoloured. Yes, well, we have a, a range of um, backgrounds that we use here at IM3 because uh, we've got a range of different technical areas that uh, uh, come together. And this particular one is some iron ore, actually. So, again, for the listener who can't see, it's striations of green and gold and brown. And it's one of my favourite visual ones as well as being representative of one of our technical communities yeah it's very artistic and spectacular even though it's completely natural so perhaps we could start by um asking for a bit of background about iom3 what kind of members join up um what kind of jobs do they have and what about the range of materials covered okay so iom3 is the global network for the materials cycle uh, it's got about 15,000 members and our members work across all aspects of that material cycle, by which I mean they might be involved in finding metals and minerals in the ground, extracting them, processing them, turn them into bulk products, into detailed products, uh, working out how to make better use of them and then handling them at the end of life. So very, very wide set of, of technical interests. Um, about a third of our members work in um, academic institutions, about two thirds in other institutions, apart from those who are not um, employed, so students and retired and whatever else. And about 80% of our members are based in the UK and about 20% are based in 90 plus other countries uh, around the world. 
in terms of materials, rather ironically, probably the the material that we do least on is material, as in cloth. Um, but apart from that, absolutely everything from wood to the most advanced of nanomaterials and everything in between. So a, a really wide range of, of interest then um, amongst the members. And what are the hot topics for people at the moment and what concerns do those hot topics tend to raise? Yeah, so I, I, at one level, because of the breadth of our membership, um, they share the concerns of most people in society, if you like. And so certainly uh, concern about um, the, the, the sustainability issues, the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, very high on a number of our members' uh, agendas. Um, but in terms of more specific things, in terms of materials, minerals and mining and circular economy type issues, I think there are a number of things that people are worried about specifically. Um, one is uh, what we call critical raw materials. So those materials which for some reason or other are at risk in, in global supply chains but are essential for the kind of society we either have now or want to have in the future. People are also very much concerned about the future of what we call foundation industries, so the heavy industries of making steel and cement and chemicals and plastics and paper and glass, uh, and in particular how we're going to decarbonise those uh, to live within our net zero targets um, going forward. Uh, all engineers and scientists, when you talk to them, will also tell you that they're always worried about skills supply, um, and increasingly that gets bound up with uh, inclusion and diversity issues, um, although you know there are separate aspects as well. So skills is a is a big issue for us, and one particular area of skills uh, that's of concern to IM3 at the moment is the uh, looming dearth of skills of people who understand geology and applied earth science. Um, it's it's really not a popular uh, course at at school or at university. Um, there used to be a, a, a very active community of, of um, mining engineering courses across the UK. There aren't now at undergraduate level any that are actively recruiting. And I think we'll probably come on to talk about it, but you know, not having the skills to find and extract material properly and sensibly um, is going to be an issue for us going forward. Uh, our members are also involved in packaging issues, for example. So here in the UK, there are some big changes coming along to the rules of how one pays for and handles packaging at end of life. And that's a big issue um, for, for, our, for our members as well. So quite a few of the issues are very closely related to sustainability uh, in lots of different aspects. Um, and, and really, the, the members of IM3 are, are fundamental to a lot of those transformations. We, we, we like to say that um, our role at IOM3 is to support professionals in materials, minerals and minerals, to be heroes of the transition to a low carbon and resource efficient society and, and not villains. And, and actually, you know, when you think about it, so much of this transition to a low carbon and resource efficient circular, more circular economy and society depends on stuff, materials, things, whether it's lithium for batteries or silicon for power, for um, solar power or uh, new forms of uh, composites to lightweight vehicles, you know, all sorts of different things. It's all about material stuff, things. And we're moving from a world which is uh, using fossil fuels to transfer energy to a world that's using metals and minerals to transfer energy. So even more important in the future will be stuff. Mm, absolutely. And we're realizing that the demand of all these new renewable technologies probably exceeds um, supply. And certainly I was just reading something from Green Alliance 
saying that the projected use of um, uh, renewable uh, electric vehicles, um, what else was in there? Solar, solar panels and something else, just those three things that the UK exceeded its fair share um, of key minerals. So there's that aspect of it as well, isn't there? Not just what's available, but how to distribute it fairly. Um, and Absolutely. And then, of course, tackling, sorry, as I say, tackling climate change is a global issue. And um, even if the UK totally decarbonises, which we need to do, if we, in decarbonising the UK economy, uh, stop another economy from decarbonising because we've taken all the materials necessary for that process, then there's still too much carbon dioxide in the air or too many greenhouse gases. So absolutely, that 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 fair share argument is is it's not just ethical; it's also deeply practical. Mm. And it really brings home the need to move to more circular ways of doing things, so that we're designing things so that if something better comes along, we can get all the key resources out of the first product um, instead of discarding them and get them get them used again and absolutely over the last couple of decades resource issues have surfaced in a, a variety of different ways but back in 2011 i remember being really struck by mckinsey talking about a century of price declines i.e in the 20th century reversed in a decade so what's happened since then what what does the picture look like I think the, the the main dominant feature, if you look at materials prices, resource prices, is actually fluctuation. And quite often for businesses, you can you can find a way to deal with almost almost any price level, so long as it's predictable and stable. What's really, really difficult is to deal with fluctuating price levels, particularly when they go from low to high, obviously, because you haven't got it priced into your into your services and products. So that fluctuation that we see over the past decade and a half, two decades, is really troublesome. And of course, a lot of that is driven by wider geopolitical uh, circumstances. And we are recording this podcast at a particularly tense geopolitical moment, but there have been plenty of others that have impacted on the supply of one or other commodity or resource uh, over time. And that that's really hard for businesses to deal with. Mm. And we're seeing a similar thing, aren't we, with competing industries, um, you know, over the last year or so, the car industry's lost out um, for access to chips because um, other industries have been able to afford to pay the premium um, to get get access to those materials in the, in the product. So there's, there's kind of um, a whole range of issues of demand and supply imbalance. And um, when we spoke ahead of the podcast, you mentioned that the IOM3 members cover the full value chain circle from mining right through to recycling. So how, how are you helping them close the loop on resources and bring the circular economy into reality? Yeah, I, for me, one of the great, I, I joke that the greatest strength of IOM3 is the, te- the breadth of technical interests of its members. And one of the greatest weaknesses of IM3 is the breadth of technical interests of its members. Um, and, and this is definitely one of those topics that falls into that, that joke dichotomy. Because on the one hand, we within our membership can find people at every point of that value chain. And if we can bring them together to talk about that in a way that is outside of commercial world, because we are a Royal Charter company and a charity and all the rest of it, that can be incredibly powerful. And that's one of the things that we are constantly trying to do is to help our members come together and talk about these issues in a way um, that's that's pre-competitive or outside of the competitive space. And therefore that they can find 
good solutions. Um, but at the same time, what it shows is just how complicated those chains are. I mean, if you just think about, um, we, we mentioned lithium uh, for, for, for batteries, for example, and it's, you know, much lithium is mined in either Australia or in um, the lithium triangle in South America, although we have now got some happening in here in the UK, which is really good news. Um, it's then converted into lithium carbonate, usually transported to China, where it's processed into uh, battery elements, and then it gets shipped to different places to be then turned into uh, batteries and then turned into cars. But at various of those stages, various streams of material will be coming in together and then going out again, mixed, crossed over, split, whatever it might be. And you just think about that and the different professionals who are involved in each of those stages who are making decisions about how they put things together or how they take things apart that then imp have implications much further down the supply chain. But that supply chain is so fragmented and difficult to follow through that they have no idea of the impact of those decisions. And then the people five steps down just receive what they receive and have to work out the problems. I mean, the, the, this the, the classic one that people will talk about most, of course, is, is, is waste management companies who are very often in the, the, the vein of just receiving whatever comes into the bin and then having to work out what the heck that is and how you deal with it. Um, and the more we can connect along that chain and get people to talk and understand, the better. But it's blooming difficult. Mm, I can imagine it's incredibly complicated. Even um, I remember doing a case study on Fairphone a few years ago and the difficulties that they had even establishing which country the raw materials came from. Um, you know, never mind what had happened to them after that, but you know, was it was it a fair mind um, process or 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 not? Um, and how, how do you certify that? Absolutely. And I think that, that whole area of transparency labeling certification through the chain is is really important. And and people are very excited about things like blockchain technology, but even blockchain, you know, it's not um, a, it's not a silver bullet and B it has its own potential downsides because it can be very energy intensive, for example. Mm. So, you know, is, is a, a, a lot of iron ore mined in Australia and tracked by blockchain better or worse than some iron ore mined in sub-Saharan Africa and not tracked by um, blockchain because it's, you know, you've got all sorts of different factors. And it's really important to try and look at things like life cycle analysis, but even there, it can be really difficult. So I was doing some work with one of my members last year sometime, and he was saying that um, he was looking at a data set for life cycle analysis around a set of different metals. And what he found was that the data that the world was using to identify the life cycle uh, impact of a particular metal was based on one mine in the middle of Africa which produced maybe 10% of the global production. So that's, you know, it's substantial, but there's 90% that's produced elsewhere. And we all know that the um, climate and social and other um, constraints and opportunities in sub-Saharan Africa will be different from say, the Southern tip of Argentina or the center of the US or you know, pick any other uh, country that you might want to pick. And so even using a tool that could be so rich as life cycle analysis to understand some of these impacts and some of these supply chain issues can be confounded by the data not being good enough in the, in the first place. It's a huge challenge, but it's vital that we get on top of it to the extent that we can.
Mm. And I think that's where it comes back to the, the transparency around that, isn't it? Being able to see what the data is in the LCA. I've seen quite a bit of um, criticism of the HIG index recently with their comparison of organic cotton versus conventional or industrial cotton. And um, I remember looking at that when I was first first researching the circular economy and looking at the difference because um, organic cotton ostensibly used an awful lot less water, you know, kind of 10% of the water um, versus conventional and kind of thinking, well, why would that be? Because, um, you know, maybe the plants are a bit shorter, but surely it can't be that different. Um, and it turned out that these figures are based um, in a similar um, way to the example you just gave. Um, there's, you know, there's one organic farm that's been used um, to do the LCA for organic cotton, and that happened to have plenty of rainwater, so there was no need for irrigation. Um, so they've kind of, you know, scaled that out and applied it to every place that's growing organic cotton, which which isn't right. Um, yeah. But to to not even kind of make that clear and have the caveat around it doesn't allow anybody to kind of think, oh, well, I, I need to know that bit of information. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's critical to what I'm doing, so I'll go and do some more research. Um, so I think that the whole, the whole thing about LCAs, I think they, they should be like Wikipedia, it should be open access data that anybody can, you know, add to and query and, and challenge. I think if anybody ever just gives you the results of their LCA and refuses to expose the underlying data, you should seriously question the results because if you, the way that you choose the data sources, the way that you choose the boundary conditions can turn black into white and uh, vegan into uh, carnival. Mm, that's yes, that's really good advice for people. Um, really good advice. And so, what do you see as the main challenges over the next ten to twenty years? I know I'm asking you to be a futurist here, um, but what kind of what kind of future challenges are you particularly um, focused in on? Yeah, so they, they link back to the sorts of things that exercise my members, actually. And so it's the, the challenges around sustainability, climate crisis, biodiversity and skills. And the skills underpin it all, because if you haven't got the right skills, you can't take the right actions to solve the other problems. Um, but so, for, for, for example, if you look at the work of people like uh, Julian Allwood at um, UK Fires in Cambridge, you know, he'll be very, very clear that with current technology, um, we won't be able to use cement and concrete in 2050. It's not compatible with net zero. And yet cement and concrete is vitally important to the way that we currently live. So one or the other has to give or something has to change. So that sort of uh, decarbonisation challenge, that material challenge, whether it's changing to glue laminated timber rather than concrete beams, or whether it's finding a zero carbon cement you know those are huge challenges and they are materials challenges and then that's the kind of thing that, that that my members are really involved with the other thing that i think it's it's really worth mentioning is most things most products that we engage with both as consumers and businesses are complex and multi-material and that is one of the fundamental challenges for circularity um, the example that lots of people will be aware of is um, plastic packaging where you have multi-polymer uh, packaging and, and the difficulties you have in separating that. But it applies in lots of other places as well. There are three and a half thousand different grades of steel on the market. 
Um, and if you mix them all up together and melt them back, what you get is rebar. You know, that reinforced, mm. the bar that you put in reinforced concrete, which is about as low value as you can get because you don't know what's in it and you can't rely on it to be high spec and high tech. And when you think of the money, effort, time and energy, and I literally mean energy, electricity or whatever else that went into creating those different kinds of alloy to then mix them together and make rebar is hugely wasteful, hugely wasteful. It's still recycling, but it's absolutely downcycling, certainly not upcycling. Um, and that's just steel alloys. Um, if you think about other items, you know, the complexity of these machines that you and I are talking to each other on, multiple elements, put together in lots of different ways, how you get those out in a sensible way and then return them into useful uh, life is of course a huge challenge. And again, a lot of that is, is as a materials challenge, whether it's how you put them together, how you join them and the surface coatings that you might need to put in place. Um, and then the sort of science, if you like, of separation at the end, those are all materials challenges. And so this whole, this is, this is why we talk about this challenge of the transition to a low carbon resource efficient society. It's because we have to decarbonize and we have to be more circular and materials is fundamental to that. Mm. Yeah. And it all plays back to, you know, the, the two main strategies that I think we need to focus on is making things that last for an awful lot longer. Even if we don't want to use them for longer, they should have some reuse and resale value and be repairable and, um, and even easy to remanufacture. And then, moving away from this culture of having exclusive access to absolutely everything, you know, being convinced that we need a TV in every room in the house instead of having a debate about what we're going to watch and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the whole sharing, renting, paper use economy um, for yeah. all the things that we don't need to have access to. And those are, those are so fundamental, aren't they, in terms of um, taking the pressure off materials and, and, and also if we're making products that last for longer or are shareable so we get more we have more profit opportunities from them then that allows us to invest in different techniques to manufacture them so that we put the time and effort into making them easy to disassemble perhaps not have to had to use a blended material but been able to use um, something something different that's more um, reusable and circular yeah absolutely uh, well, one of my favorite statistics is one that um a, uh, a well-known UK-based um, uh, home improvement retailer uh, told me, sorry, it's a very complicated way of not saying the name, um, the average use of an electric drill in its life is something like six minutes. Now, I do a lot of DIY, so I use my drill a lot more than that, but that's just shocking. Basically, people buy a drill and they use it once and then it sits in a cupboard somewhere. And there's huge waste of resources that is in that. But also the downsides of, from a social perspective, you know, um, surely we should be um, reducing the price of access to those six minutes so that everybody can have those six minutes and then having a better quality device to do it so fewer people break their wrists when they drill into the sub, whatever it might be. And, and that, it, it, you know, there's the environmental, there's the economic and there's the social, it's a proper sustainable conversation. It's the three pillars of sustainable development that, that you can see coming through in, in, in those new ways of thinking about, about stuff. And um, we all though also have to consume less in the West, in the North. Um, 
And, you know, you, you, you look at, for example, the consumption of, of just steel. Again, I'm going to pick uh, material. Um, we recycle 97, I think, something percent of the steel that comes to end of life globally. And yet we're still digging up and making 10 times as much steel as we're recycling because we're sucking it into our steel frame buildings and our cars and our, you know, whatever else it might be. And in some parts of the world, they don't yet consume enough and therefore they are too poor. You know, they do, they do not have an adequate level of human development. Uh, but places like the UK, uh, most of Europe, North America, we consume too much. You, you mentioned earlier the Green Alliance ethical share. It's a similar kind of idea to, 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 to that. But you know, we have to balance these things, consume the right amount to be well off, because that's what that's right and proper, uh, but not overconsume and therefore waste. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And I remember um, a few years ago, so I won't I won't remember the exact example. I think it was something from the um, uh, Building Research Council. There was an example of a building that had been um, taken down and reused two or three times. I think it had been an aircraft hangar um, and some sort of storage building and something else. And it might even have moved countries. So it was kind of, you know, steel gantries. Um, and there's no reason why we couldn't design all sorts of things on that same basis. Um, and I guess it, a lot of it comes back to policy, doesn't it? If we were taxing the use of virgin materials, then that might create more innovation around design and the value of those materials when they come to the end of their use. Now you've stolen my thunder now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, that was that was that was going to be the next the next thing I was going to ask you is what policies are you, are you seeing or do you think we need that can help close the loop and level the playing field? So I think you you have to look at the incentives and the structures around it and. I think it was Einstein who said, you can never solve a problem at the level of complexity that you created it. And the analogy for me here in our context is the, the issues that we've created about um, lack of sustainability, lack of circularity, problems with greenhouse gas emissions have been created by the world that we have around us, the economic, social and political systems that we have. And to expect them all in their current state to slip, to flip, sorry, and solve these problems in a, a relatively short period of time is fanciful. So you have to see changes. You have to see changes. And people being people, humans being humans, one of the best ways of doing that is to incentivize the correct and disincentivize the incorrect behaviors. And it, it's usually better to try and do that at, a, at, a, at least a semi-macro level and leave the individual decisions to the individuals um, rather than trying to control absolutely everything because that way lies madness. And we've seen many examples of, of, of organizations and companies that have failed miserably through a total command and control approach. So you have to then, I think, look at stuff in that light and as we've just joked one way is to increase the cost of virgin materials virgin stuff um, thus incentivizing people to look for alternatives but you have to at the same time make sure that you've got a supplier of uh, recycled materials or reused materials coming in as well and you it's really difficult to, to make this the switch without having to go in a sort of stepwise incremental way an overnight switch is really difficult to, 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 to manage on a sort of national or global economic level. 
but that's really what we need to try and see. Here in the UK, I think um, some of the changes that are happening around packaging regulations are a really interesting example of trying to get into that space. And you can argue about some of the detail, but basically what the UK is trying to do is, first of all, um, from April this year, there'll be a tax on um, plastic packaging that doesn't contain at least 30% recycled material. So that is trying to create the demand for recycled material. That's, you know, that's good. Then at some point in the next year or so, um, we should have a revised approach to who pays for the, the end of life of, of packaging or packaging, not just plastic. And the basic rule is that the person who puts it on the market, the producer, the main brand, whatever else, um, has to pay, uh, getting on for 100%, at least 85%, but getting on for 100% of the costs of end of life. So that's then an incentive, in theory at least, to design your packaging in a way that means the end of life is as cheap as possible. Mm. Yeah, and maybe even fund the investment to reusable packaging and yep. pre-fill packaging like the um, the loop system that was on, on the podcast a while ago, yep. um, which um, Tom Zaki at TerraCycle was, was talking about that, creating a whole new area of interest for packaging designers that suddenly it wasn't just about the lowest cost and the biggest visual impact on the shelf. Suddenly it was about durability and maybe even enhancing some of the features of the packaging that could help the product like the twin wall insulated ice, um, ice cream containers. So suddenly those packaging designers had got a whole new area of interest and excitement and innovation. Um, so again, it makes, makes people's jobs more interesting, doesn't it? It's not just about how do we get the cost down? It is. And I think there's another element in going specifically on the packaging point that you were um, exposing there. Um, I, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> even before the, the pandemic, I used to do a reasonable amount of my grocery shopping online. And I think now it's almost all of it is, is, is done by online home delivery. And one of the things that means is actually the role of packaging fundamentally, even single use packaging is changing. So Packaging, why, why, why does it exist? Um, it has three main purposes, really. The first one is to attract the eye of the consumer when it's sitting on the shelf. The second is to protect it from the shelf to the consumer's cupboard, because prior to that, it's protected by secondary and tertiary packaging. And then the third is to convey whatever information needs to be conveyed, whether that's ingredients lists, allergens, um, health warnings, salt content, you know, all of that kind of um, information. Now, if I'm buying it from a website, you can show me any picture you like, but it can come in a gray box for all I care. So that drawing your eye thing maybe doesn't matter quite so much anymore. It's been delivered by somebody that you hope is a bit professional in a vehicle that's adapted for that purpose. So actually protecting it from shelf to your cupboard is less important than it was. And then stick a QR code on it and you get all the information you want without having to print it on the packaging, potentially. You add into that the scope for refill, you know, those um, supermarket lorries could equally have a large container of, I don't know, pulses or pasta or washing up liquid or whatever else it is, and you come out with your bottle and fill it up and take it back in. You can see that that actually there's some issues, certainly in, 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 in the West, the richer countries, that could see that, sh that, that whole purpose of packaging shifting quite substantially. So I agree with what you said about why packaging, reusable packaging can be more interesting. It could also be 
a much larger part of the future for other reasons not to do with people's concern about sustainability. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it takes me straight back to um, a battle I had when I was at, at Kellogg's with the marketing team where we were trying to come up with, um, it was when um, Costco and the other big discounters were supposedly setting up these big warehouse um you know shops that and they wanted um different packaging and so we were talking about changing the size of a 750 gram box of cornflakes which is very tall and very wide and not very deep into something much squatter uh, and we designed it so it would fit perfectly on the pallet and fill the vehicle and the logistics savings were massive <laughs> and marketing just said no 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 we want the biggest impact on the shelf so we're not changing anything um, and it was just all about that, you know, the visual, the yep. visual impact of the of the um, the cockerel on the front. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, so but I the, that could just translate into so many changes, though, couldn't it? Just just that that kind of reimagining it and um, looking at the way that we're now doing things and and uh, changing our shopping habits. Yeah, it's, it's really um, thought provoking. And so, Colin, since joining IOM three. What have you struggled with and what surprised you in, the, in conversations related to materials, minerals and mining? So uh, one of the reasons why I was really excited about taking on this role was because I spent quite a lot of my um, professional life wondering about the waste end of the circular economy. And I was as convinced as I could be without having worked in it that actually part of the answer lay higher up further up the value chain supply chain whatever else and that's absolutely been the case and that's been really exciting and positive and invigorating but it's also blooming difficult see earlier conversation that we had you know the complexity and the um the number of different angles that you have to think about in that space is 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 very very difficult indeed so struggling with getting one's head and my head everyone's head the institute's head around that complexity and how best we can support our members to unpick that complexity and understand that complexity and work through that complexity has been a huge struggle but a really rewarding one at the same at the same time um i think the thing that surprised me but it shouldn't have was um how receptive everybody was to the idea of thinking about sustainability, circularity, decarbonisation. I'd, I'd kind of grown up in a world that was pretty focused on that. A lot of my roles had been in pretty explicitly environmental focused areas. And I was coming into an area that didn't on the face of it seem to be environmentally conscious, if you like. And I was wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. And I thought I was going to have a huge difficulty in getting people to realise how fundamental this was. And, and that was wrong. Um, and, and that was really surprising and really positive. But but actually, it's made up of people who are very professional, technically quite well qualified, been thinking about all these issues. So I shouldn't have thought that, but I did. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and also very encouraging that people aren't as late to the party as we as we might think. And so, what if you were sharing top tips with somebody wanting to take their business? in a more circular direction or even start something circular. Um, what would be your number one tip that you'd share? I think this is a really hard one to, um, to generalize because I think um, the, the, the sort of 
specifics of how you bring in a new circular model or a new circular product or make your business more circular are, are going to vary so much. But I think it's, it's, it's really, really important to try and think as much as you can about the holistic picture, the system. I work at an organization that likes to think of itself as a, an engineering, amongst other things, organization. And we love talking about systems. Even more so, we love talking about systems of systems. Um, but if you're going to make circularity work, you have to think about the system. You have to think about how everything fits together and how your innovation, your product, your change sits within that overall system. Yeah, I think that that's that's great advice and something that we find so hard to do, isn't it? Because we get focused in on the bits that we can control um, and outside looks complex and opaque and it, it's so easy to, to miss something vital. Um, and Colin, if you could change just one thing, if you had a magic wand to wave today, um, what would that one thing be? So it really is a magic wand and that would be to raise the value to society of raw materials, uh, virgin raw materials. That would, at a stroke, um, put in place a lot of the incentives that we need to have to change how we deal with things. Stuff is too cheap. Um, it does not, in, to use the, 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 the economist speak, you know, we don't internalise the externalities of social and environmental damage from the extraction, processing and transport of stuff. We just don't. Um, and so we overuse it and abuse it. So that would be the magic one. But the, 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 having said that, it really is a magic one because I think the, the, the complexities involved in doing that are, particularly if you couldn't do it at the global level, and I, you know, I don't think we have the governance to do it at a global level. Um, it, it's like thinking about a carbon price or a carbon tax n times more difficult because there are n times more things to worry about. Um, and, you know, how do you work out uh, the, the value of the materials in a particular product, for example. So very, very idealistic magic wand waving there. Mm. Well, but magic wands are always useful because you can, you know, having had the, uh, the germ of the idea, you can then work out how you can, you know, set the compass in that direction and, and move yeah. forward, can't you? Um, and Colin, is there anyone you'd recommend as a future guest for the programme? I think there, there are lots of interesting people and I, I will confess I haven't gone through all episodes of yours to check that you haven't had any of these people on but some of the ones who came to my mind so um, many people might have heard of a, a professor called Mark Miodovnik um, he's at UCL and he's a fantastic communicator about material science issues um, and he's just hugely entertaining to talk to and, and to listen to so he's he, he's great i have his um, have his book on my on my shelf behind us excellent stuff, excellent. stuff matters i think it was the latest one yeah yeah um and then um somebody in a broadly similar vein but but earlier on in her career is anna poshowski who's um an up-and-coming uh, science communicator if you like um and she is really good at uh bringing material science into everyday life and, and, and making the relationships there. So those would be two material science type people. Um, circular economy type people, um, Anna Vellenturf, who's an academic, um, and she's currently involved with a lot of work around uh, decarbonising industry and um, energy um, circularity of wind farms, things of that nature, uh, which is, you know, it's outside of the consumer 
circularity model, but it's still pretty blooming fundamental to this whole transition. So those are the three names I'd just throw at you to, to have a think about. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I, I know Anne, she's at, at Leeds, so in the same, in the same county. Um, so yeah, thanks for those. Um, I might have to come back to you about the spelling of Anna's name. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the other, the other two I can definitely spell. And Colin, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and IOM3? So we obviously have a website, www.iom3.org. Um, we're on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. If you search for IOM3, um, you'll find us there. Um, and I think my details are probably in the um, show notes for this episode. So if people want to get hold of me there, then they can. And uh, we're always interested in talking to people, particularly if you wish to become a member. But even if you don't, we're very much up for the conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. And yes, we'll put all those links in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com as usual, along with the transcript. And yeah, we covered lots there. And I think we could have um, talked for just as long and, and delved into a few other issues. I had a list, of, a long list of materials because there's just so many things we we don't even think about, like sand and, and, um, and all sorts Absolutely. of things. It's my so, favourite critical raw material at the moment. Oh, is it? Sand. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Because because people say sand can't be a critical raw material, but actually it's, it, it can be, and it is in some places. Um, graphite's another, rubber's another, you know, just people think that critical raw materials are just exotic materials that go into smartphones and um, lithium um, batteries. And, and it's, that's not true. Materials are so much more than that. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, you're never going to run out of things to get curious about, are you? So. <laughs> Colin, thank you very much. That's been illuminating. And um, yeah, it's a shame we couldn't, couldn't have dived into a whole load of materials. But thanks for sharing all of that and um, look forward to hearing what you're up to next. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure to be here, Catherine. I was fascinated to hear about the complexity of issues and the vast range of materials that IOM3 members are involved in. As Colin said, it's everything from wood to nanomaterials. Colin reminded us about the complexities of typical modern supply chains, often involving a wide range of actors. We talked about some of the major limitations with these extended chains, often with many different tiers of supply between those providing the materials and those specifying and purchasing the finished products that contain those materials. As Colin explained, many of the material suppliers don't know the full extent of the supply chains they're part of, so they can't optimise how they're developing the materials for the processors, components or products further down each of those supply chains. Supply chain transparency is also a big challenge, but Colin shares the concerns of many others that blockchain isn't the answer, particularly given its heavy energy use. When we think about critical raw materials, we tend to think of materials used in key technologies such as lithium, cobalt, nickel and so on. Early on in the conversation, I mentioned an excellent article published by the Green Alliance a few months ago by Patrick Schroeder and Jack Barry from Chatham House. It says that, according to the International Energy Agency, to achieve, achieve net zero globally by 2050, will require 600% more mineral inputs in 2040 than we do today. Demand for lithium, necessary for electric vehicle batteries, will increase over 4,000%. 
while cobalt and nickel demand will increase by over 2,000% by 2040. The article looks at possible circular solutions to those resource challenges, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. But it's not just these minerals for high tech we need to worry about. Colin reminded us that basic materials like sand and rubber are just as critical as demand keeps rising with knock-on effects for increasing adverse impacts on ecosystems. We also talked about the fair shares issue. In other words, how we decide how to allocate those resources like lithium and so on that are in short supply. That's going to be a key challenge for many materials going forward. The article from Jack Barry and Patrick Schroeder that I just mentioned refers to another Green Alliance report which points out that even with demand reduction measures, the UK could still use up to three times its fair share of reserves of some critical raw materials by 2050. One circular economy solution is a leasing model allowing countries to retain control of their key resources. Perhaps we even need a global resource council. The challenge goes further than how to ensure fair shares for countries. We're going to need to work out how sectors and products are prioritised. That might mean giving preference to tools over toys. For example, is the rollout of 4G more important than batteries for energy storage and electrification of transport? Colin also talked about the big challenge of how to decarbonise, particularly for what he called the foundation industries, the heavy industries of steel, cement, chemicals, plastic, paper and glass, and so on. We talked about policy measures and the need for more macro-level guidance, perhaps by taxing the use of virgin resources and especially of critical materials. And of course, taxing resources becomes more complex when we think about the impact on those with lower incomes. As Colin said, stuff is too cheap, and so we overuse it and abuse it. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Colin Church, Chief Executive of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, IOM3. And thank you for listening. Thanks to Julie Hill, Chair at Waste and Resources Action Programme and author of The Secret Life of Stuff for making this episode possible. You can find out more and follow Colin on social media And as always, you can check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. If you want to find episodes on a particular circular economy strategy or for a market sector or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com. And every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too, with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word, talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, 
how to build a more resilient, competitive and sustainable business. The book takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with Circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and Circular Economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and we'll see you next time.